Greetings, folks, and welcome to the first episode of the Wisdom Keeper podcast. Just a little intro or prelude to things to come. I want to just give you a little insider perspective on the origin story behind the Wisdom Keeper podcast, which is launching in 2022, early Jan. You know, the world is undergoing a great and dramatic transition, as many of us can tell. And we're watching a unprecedented system breakdown. Every single industry is in a way crumbling at its core, whether it be the banking industry, the economic system, as we pump more fiat currency uh, into the into the economies of the world, trying to prop it up on unstable ground. But the political system we've we've seen is as corrupt no matter what banner they we fly over the the governments across the world. And uh, there's political unrest and people have basically had enough. And this is all signs and symptoms of a great tumultuous sea change that we're witnessing, which has been, of course, foretold for many countless eons from sacred cultures across the planet. As as the Mayan calendar predicted, there was no end date. Uh, there was a sea change. Uh, the 2020-12 calendar was really a prediction about a cataclysmic sort of uh, demise of a cultural way of being and a transition into a new eon. That was also foretold in the great platonic year, which was followed as far east as India and Persia and Samaria. And the Greeks also knew about the great 25,000 year cycle of the procession of the equinoxes. And so we are finding ourselves now in time and place during a great epoch change between the so-called Piscean age and the age of Aquarius. And uh, it is in particularly this period that we find ourselves some window in time spanning some 80 years or so, not a not a single date, but more like a, uh, a transition of the tides where the structures that have been normative are crumbling and opening the crusts of the tectonic plates, a great surge of energy that will in a way usher forth or in a new paradigm, a new paradigm in science, a new paradigm uh, in medicine, a new paradigm in economic structures, a new political ethos. And so the Wisdom Keeper podcast essentially is my hope to invite in wisdom keepers and elders, mentors, yogis, scholars, holders of sacred knowledge who have committed their lives to guiding us through this very process of spiritual transformation, both personally, but also systemically. And as we ride the waves of this emerging paradigm shift, more of us are going to be looking to these reliable guides to help us sense make our experience and also to navigate the challenges and the, uh, and the complexities of human endeavor. And so with each you know, episode of the Wisdom Keeper podcast, I hope to bring you into an intimate, intimate conversation with holders of sacred knowledge on a wide range of topics from spirituality to psychology, mythology to astrology, sacred arts, meditation, and of course, my favorite pilgrimage. So together, I hope that, you know, through our conversations and through your own reflections and through all the various activities that I offer at the program, the, the Contemplative Studies program, our courses, our pilgrimages, our community forum and membership, I hope that these stimulate ongoing conversation, but also provide a container, an incubation crucible 
for the development of new ways of thinking, the new, way, the new ways of relating, new ways of uh, creating uh, community uh, for, the, for, the basic, for basically a new culture that's going to emerge. And so that's my hope with the Wisdom Keeper podcast. It is, it is based on my inspiration uh, after looking at the celestial picture that we're in, and I hope that you enjoy what comes through it. So with that, I am very delighted to discuss with you and introduce with you my first podcast guest, Phil Cousineau. Phil Cousineau is a, a, uh, a prolific writer and filmmaker. He's a teacher, he's an editor, a lecturer, a travel leader, a storyteller, and a TV host. He's basically a polymath. And I had a very fascinating conversation with him. I, I met him through Sacred Earth Journeys. We both lead pilgrimages across the planet. He to uh, Italy and Greece and myself to uh, parts of Asia, Sri Lanka, Nepal and India uh, through Sacred Earth Journeys. And I met him through Helen, our, our tour operator there. He's, his fascination, Phil's fascination is with art and literature, history of culture, uh, he's, he's taken, he's taken uh, a trek into the soul, the journey of the soul, from Michigan to Marrakesh, Iceland, to at the Amazon, in a worldwide search for what the ancients called the soul of the world. With more than 35 books and 15 script writing credits to his name, the omnipresent influence of myth in modern life is the thread that runs through all of Phil's work. His books include Stoking the Creative Fires, once and Future Myths, The Art of Pilgrimage, My Favorite, The Hero's Journey, and many more. His website is philcousineau.net, and I had the pleasure to catch him during the 25th anniversary of The Art of Pilgrimage, which is basically an epic seminal text where he describes how to go on sacred journey, even if that means going to, around the block to some ancient uh, wisdom bastion uh, that will expose or open your mind to to the nether words nether worlds of your imagination. In this podcast, Phil and I discuss the purpose of pilgrimage from its ancient roots uh, to modern times. We also talk about physical places, actual you know places of power that uh, sacred cultures have invested and imbued with meaning for countless eons, but also secular sites. See, Places like the, the 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 basketball or the baseball Hall of Fame, or places you know where scientists made their first discoveries. We talk about the importance of reconnecting, remembering, and revitalizing our lives after centuries of fragmentation and disconnection from spirit. And I really drew from Phil in this conversation one particular meme that came out that I think will carry me forward throughout all the podcasts that I do on the Wisdom Keeper podcast. He talked about in order to go forward, we have to go back. And I think this is it. I think this is really the heart of the spirit of my intention and my hope with these kinds of conversations is to allow wisdom keepers to help us reclaim something that we have lost. In order to go forward, we have to go back. So we're amidst a great sea change and everything is collapsing and people are going to make new inroads and discover new ways of doing things. But will there be legacy? Will there be roots? If you just join me in imagining an image of a tree, 
It is the roots, the depth and the integrity of the roots that keep the tree stable when the winds blow and the tectonic pl uh, plates shift. And so as we make our way forward in life, what will inevitably ground us through the tumult and through the fire and the, the destruction and the chaos of the weighing, laying down or raising the, the, uh, the, 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 the foundation is our, is our connection with lineage, is our connection with lineage. In order to create new life, we need a very firm connection with source, with soul, with lineage, with ancient technology, ancient sciences. This is an incredible opportunity that we're about to undergo. There's so many of us are yearning for a new world. But we can't go in willy-nilly. We can't go in haphazard. We can't go in with superficial fantasies. It is reclaiming something very deep in the human psyche that is time-tested uh, that I think will serve us well. And so Phil and I, uh, thanks to Phil, he really raised that in this conversation. And I think I'm holding on to it as I go through the conversations in the future. Phil also describes uh, the contemplation, his contemplations on the road uh, while he leads pilgrimages and how important multi-sensory experiences uh, and also to, uh, to capitalize on intention setting and also attention. This is something I think he has very profound crossover implications once you come back from pilgrimage. How you deploy your intention and your attention really changes the very quality of your experience. Uh, Phil and I also discuss his relationship with his mentor, Joseph Campbell, who many of you know and is a huge inspiration for my work and my next book, and the need to innovate the epic hero's journey from a mostly male rite of passage to a more collective and inclusive myth. I hope you'll enjoy that. That was a really interesting point of the, our discussion. We also discuss the difference between taking as a tourist and giving back as a pilgrim, and finally, Phil and I discuss how pilgrimage will change after COVID. And I think this has a lot of symbolic implication for the new world that we're heading into. Again, every sector of the world right now is being disrupted. The medical industry is being disrupted. The economic industry is being disrupted. Political regimes across the world are being disrupted. And how we do travel will also be disrupted. Hopefully, we will have much more heart-centered, much more ecologically minded, much more travel that includes reciprocity with our host countries, and, and much more spiritually inclined travel in the future. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my uh, new initiative in 2022, the Wisdom Keeper podcast, inaugurated by my dear friend, Phil Cozano, mythologist, prolific Arthur, and just all around beautiful heart. Enjoy the podcast. Leave your comments, like and subscribe, share generously amongst your network as we create traction on this. And if you ever want to circle back to any of my activities, go to gradualpath.com for all the programs at the Contemplative Studies program. All best wishes. And welcome to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. I'm joined today by our very special guest, Phil Cousineau, longtime mythologist, author of many books, including the celebrated 
Art of Pilgrimage, which is experiencing its 25th anniversary right now. I'm catching Phil amidst a whirlwind virtual tour. He's exhausted, I'm sure, but he has been so kind to, and uh, generous to offer a little bit of window into his reality. And just by way of an introduction, uh, Phil and I both lead pilgrimages with our dear friend Helen, an extraordinary visionary uh, who, who is the owner of Sacred Journeys, Sacred Earth Journeys, and we have pilgrimages running at least to Greece and Italy, I know, with Phil and myself. I go to India and Nepal. So we'd like to just give a shout out to Helen, who put us together. Phil, I'm so honored to, I've been a huge fan of yours for so long, both by way of your work under uh, Joseph Campbell, but also just a, what a creative mind, a genius mind, and all your contributions to writing and literary advancement. And so thank you so much. And I'd love to talk to you about pilgrimage. Where should we start? We could obviously start, I guess, with just where we are right now in the pandemic. Both of us, in a way, in, uh, in, in limbo, as you were, probably both of us very eager to get back on the road. But I'm just going to check in with you about your current status right now. Well, currently, at this very moment, what the Greeks called in the infinite moment, a phrase I've come to love. I'm sitting in my home in San Francisco on the top of Telegraph Hill. I live in North Beach, the old Italian part of town, uh, one of the centers of Bohemia in the world. We can talk about pilgrimages to different Bohemian spots all around the planet. And I, um, yeah, as someone who has been traveling every year since he was a kid growing up in the streets of Detroit, it has been a bit, a bit of a, a whop to the to the forehead to to suddenly stay at home for a couple years now. However, yes, we are planning to resume our trips next year, La Dolce Vita, the Sweet Life in Italy, and then a subsequent tour slash pilgrimage, which I've titled "In the Footsteps of Odysseus and Penelope," in order to bring the the woman the female, the archetype, back into this story, which, which is happening all, all around the world. So many of the old myths are being retold by women, which I think is wonderful for everybody, virtually everybody. So I'm excited about those, th those trips. At the same time, what's, what's on my mind, of course, is what has changed, what will change. And in order to get into that, I'd like to acknowledge another one of my old mentors and friends, uh, the great Jungian depth psychologist, James Hillman, who mm -hmm. I met through Joe Campbell and worked with him for many years with Robert Bly and, and many others, in which he had a very interesting take about the whole notion of the journey, the hero journey. For listeners, they might not know that I co-wrote the movie about Joe, which is still playing all around the world. And my first book was based, the companion book for that. And when I when I would talk to, to Hillman about this notion of the hero's journey, which is the search for the self, essentially. But it takes place in a crisis, like we have been during the pandemic, where you're restless, traditionally the hero or the pilgrim is restless at home, or as Jim Morrison of, of The Doors, somebody else I worked with, wrote, co-wrote a book on The Doors, the, the issue about igniting the pilgrimage or the journey is that things, something's wrong, something's not quite right. Do you remember that Doors song? And that's a kind of a alert to the soul. 
mm. that you're restless and things aren't working at home. As wonderful as your friends and your family, your minister, your imam, whatever, that's not working. And traditionally, then you allow, you might say, the inner compass in the soul. I love using the word uh, psychotropic in its original fashion. It means the turning of the soul. Like heliotropic, I see plants next to you. Those plants turn towards the sun. I think there's a similar function in the human being in which the soul will turn you in the direction you need to go for the next phase of your life. So that's so Hillman's riff on that was to put the prefix R-E in front of the word for what the soul is actually calling for or the inner spirit whatever one term one's term one's use so we're in need of rejuvenation reintegration revitalization do you feel the impact of that what it means is you need to go on the return journey odysseus right that's what all that is based on and that image keeps coming up to me during the pandemic that so many as many of us have been depressed, melancholic, uh, incomplete, stymied. Think of all the powerful verbs we can use for this. And what happens if we slowly start coming out of that? It's not, I don't think a lot of us are going to be traveling for sheer entertainment, at least for a while. People are going to need what's in the, the essence of my book. This is the original hardback is spiritual rejuvenation. Something in us, our deepest spirit, needs to be revitalized. We're, <laughs> I just walked around looking for my morning coffee here in San Francisco, and people look hangdog. You remember that old expression? Much of the planet is in search of some kind of reintegration. And that, in my estimation, has been the heart of the pilgrimage urge, the pilgrim's mood for arguably 60,000 years, because I would include the Aborigine uh, question to the outback as a bona fide pilgrimage, because I've talked to those who, some Abor Australian Aborigines, the indigenous people, and they say, we need it now in our inner cities as much as our ancestors did in the dream time, tens of thousands of years ago. So I asked one man who I had on my show, I, I hope you've seen it, the uh, Global Spirit on PBS, mm -hmm. and, and this wonderful Aborigine, was, he's, his issue now is taking young people from the inner cities of Australia into the outback, following in the footsteps of the elders to help them revitalize their lives. That's what I, I hope to see as we get back to normal or maybe a better than normal, right? That we we realize something's been missing in our lives. And I think that's contact uh, with sacred ground, with sacred rituals, ceremonies, uh, the meeting of the other with a capital O, which, who we don't demonize, but instead we go and meet them with a sense of humility, a sense of, uh, I'm listening, tell me your story. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense. And it's so resonant with my experience. I just feel like, uh, you know, in, in my own book, Gradual Awakening, I really argue that we, since the age of reason, in a way, we've just gone too left brain and too certain, too into the realm of, uh, you know, knowledge, facts, data. 
And in a way, something else got cut off. We've got, we sort of cut ourselves off from a spiritual mooring. And I think we've reached a tipping point. I really do. I feel like the this the feedback that we're getting from the ecology, the systems are breaking down. The old guard is on, you know, is on shaky ground and the pandemic hits at this very poignant time. And I think it is a time for a great reassessment. And I think there'll be two camps, Phil, and I'd like to get your take on it. There will be the camp that says we will go forward. There, we, there's no looking back. And then there's also a camp that says, no, maybe we miss something. And it's not about going back to the old and staying there, but it's about bringing it back with us on the journey home. That's the one that I'm really interested in. That's where my leanings are. There's something about stepping in the footsteps of Odysseus on your pilgrimage, stepping in the footsteps of the Buddha on our pilgrimage. We're not going to go back 2,000 years. We are going to go forward inevitably. But what did we lose? And what can we bring back? What can we revitalize? Beautifully put. We, we, we have to remember that two two of the, the world's icons over the last few hundred years, Martin Luther and Carl Jung, of all people, both were suspicious of pilgrimage, which I find very interesting. Luther was suspicious because he thought that it, it was part of a kind of empty headedness and specifically Catholic Christianity th where, where you could pay someone to walk for you to Rome or Jerusalem so you could earn the indulgences and wipe the slate clear of all your sins. So of course that was bizarre. And I think we have some of that behavior today, right? B buying miles when we're, we're gonna travel to uh, erase our carbon imprint and so on. So the suspicion is wrote empty-headed, non-thinking and non-feeling forms of travel. And Jung was suspicious of that too, because he wanted, his emphasis was on the individual going somewhere. But I would argue, although I love so much of Jung's work specifically, that they have, as my father used to say, they have a kind of bass backwards. It was my dad's French version of this. In that, remember, I'm a word hound. I've even written books on the origins of words. If I speak in public, I will talk about word origins just to make sure we're using the language in a way where, where we understand each other. So where does pilgrimage comes, come from? It comes from the Latin per agrum, which originally meant to walk through the fields, which I find very beautiful. What it means is get off the bus, uh, put the remote away, <laughs> get out of your apartment, go walk somewhere, because walking in so many ways is good for the soul. It's good for the heart. It's good for the lungs, for so many things. And then the, the, the pilgrim, at least in, in my notion, in my, in my definition, in here, even in the, I have a new preface to the new edition of pilgrimage, is that it's a spiritually transformative journey to a sacred place. And that could be Santiago de Compostela, or it could be to Einstein's lab patent office, where in one year in 1905, he came up with two or three of, this, of the uh, theories that changed the world. And today, people make special journeys to go to that exact patent office, Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. What possibly could all these, these three places have in common? People go there to be recharged. And they are walking in the footsteps, as you just beautifully alluded to, not out of a sense of empty-headed uh, hero worship, 
it's humility. It's humility. I filmed in Bodh Gaya a few years ago for our PBS show. And I, I, I met a woman from Tibet who had walked from Tibet to Bodh Gaya to be there at the, the bow tree where the Buddha had his moment or was it 49 days underneath the bow tree. I think that's what it was. So it, would we call that empty headed reverence? No, it's a, it's an iteration of something that I heard perhaps put most beautifully by, again, a wonderful writer, psychologist, Edward Edinger, who actually studied with Jung. And he said in a moment of spiritual crisis, it's very salvific. Do you remember that wonderful word? It's a solve for the soul. There's something that can help resurrect your woe-begotten soul. If you not go forward, as you were just saying so great, rather than go forward, let's do something new, let's buy something new, a new house, a new car, a new, a new wife, whatever that might be. Instead, what the soul wants us to do, or the deepest sense of our essence, is to go back, back and down. And that's the hero's journey. The hero's journey is not clockwise, it's counterclockwise. So this notion is, I don't need more things. I need to simplify, 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 which was Thoreau's dictum in Walden, by the way. Three words, simplify. And you go backwards to what tried. Do you remember Kierkegaard? Life has to be lived forwards, but understood backwards. Mm. And that's what we do on pilgrimage, right? We go back humbly in the footsteps of the Buddha, Christ, Einstein, uh, James Joyce walking around Dublin in the belief actually that's been passed down for countless generations, not hammered into you. It's not propaganda. We have people who bring back stories that said, when I walked in the footsteps of Buddha or I walked in the footsteps of James Joyce, something happened in that grades, the book titled by Joseph Heller, something happened. That's the difference for me when pilgrims, pilgrims tell their story. And I get postcards and mail from all around the world who will say, I did some of the things in your book, Mr. Kuzina, and something happened. I saw the light. My heart was healed from a death in the family, uh, from my spiritual crisis. So the, the, it, does that make sense with you and your experience that you're not going forward? I'm going to take one more pilgrimage and then I'll earn some spiritual merit. No, you, you go back and down because something hurts. Something hurts, something's missing inside. And if you're humble enough to walk in the footsteps of Muhammad to Mecca or Medina, uh, walk in the footsteps of, of, of walking Tonka, maybe, or on the, the peyote road, the trails, or I've done a film about this in Mexico. You walk humbly in the footsteps of the gods, and you, and this is Edinger's main point, you gain access to some tremendous energy that is at that sacred site that you can't get back home in Des Moines. You can't get it in Philadelphia. That's the purpose of pilgrimage. It doesn't mean these places are bad. It means the energy that you need, that I need, isn't there. But it could be over there. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. It was one of my questions, you know, because some, some people kind of hedge on the pilgrimage and say, well, the pilgrimage is, 
is an internal pilgrimage and it can be done anywhere in the back, you know, the back, it can go be to the backyard. It can be the museum, you know, down the road. Um, do you think there is something in fact to the actual tangible places in my case, in your case, these are thousand year old places where great masters have been, where illumination has been found. Is it simply a matter of just crossing a threshold in your near environment and taking a risk something can be discovered wherever you are, or is there something actually to the actual physical place? In the 1990s, I worked on a series of films on Native American spirituality. And one of the men I worked with was a Reuben Snake, who my dear friend, Houston Smith, one of the my mentors and uh, the Dalai Lama has told me that Houston Smith was his mentor. How about that? Uh, Reuben Snake, he said, was the Dalai Lama of American Indians, which is a pretty cool hat to wear in life, right? And Reuben once said, uh, Phil, says, uh, we, we Indians, he says, we, we, we think that every place on Wakantanka, Jesus's green, God, God's green earth is sacred, but some places are a little more sacred than others. And I, I love that <laughs> distinction. So it's not hierarchical, right? It's not saying that Chart is better than your local church at home, but it is saying that through human experience, not propaganda, human experience, when people have walked even from Paris to Chart, which I've done, something happens in some of these sites. You can feel the frisson, the, the shiver going up the spine. You can feel it in your fingertips. Often pilgrims talk about feeling the, the power, the sacred power, the numinous power of a place through their feet. And that's actually one of the, the uh, how could you say it? The, the aspects of sacred architecture that went into the form, the forming of our uh, cathedrals in which when you enter in through the, the entrance, the doorway of Chart or Notre Dame, St. John the, the Divine in New York, you, it's as if you were walking into through the, the soles of the feet of Jesus on the cross. And that's where we get our word S-O-L-E, the soles of the feet comes from this medieval belief that by entering a church with reverence, with respect, even if you're not Christian, something will come into you. It's the energy of the place. So I'm, I'm sure you know in your experience that most of the, the, uh, the churches, excuse me, the churches and cathedrals of ancient Europe were built on old so-called pagan sites, megalithic sites, and so on. And so you think uh, it probably took 200 generations to finally decide that Stonehenge needed to go from a wood hinge to stone. And it was a lot of experiment. Does something happen here? Well, it's beautiful, th that old site, but nothing numinous is happening. So finally, when you put the, the church or the monastery, the abbey on a site, it's because there are a few thousand years of stories and experiences that said, Something happened. Uh, I had an epiphany. I, uh, what Henry Miller talking about Epidaurus in Greece, saying, I have arrived at the still point of the world. Wow. Isn't that a gorgeous phrase? It's beautiful. 
And so the two, those are the two extremes which end up meeting in the middle, if you will, in which you can walk into uh, the Blue Mosque in Istanbul. And many great travel writers over the centuries have described the hair on their heads standing up because the beauty, the geometry of the place, but also, and this is the big word, the sense of presence. There is a sense of presence. If you go to the Ganges, there is a sense of presence at Bodh Gaya or Tibet or Bhutan, uh, Borobudur in Java. I, I once got a, a, a beautiful little, what they call remember the, the little blue airmail letters, which cost you just a few pennies, written by two nuns who had written the art of, read the Art of Pilgrimage in Australia and decided that they need to understand another faith. So they wrote to the Pope and they got permission from the Pope to go on a month-long pilgrimage. And they went on a, a, a tramp steamer from Sydney to Kuala Lumpur and then got on a bus and went to Borobudur so that they could understand the sacred in another tradition. Yes, yes. This is another aspect of the whole pilgrimage routine. It's not just going to a site that in a sense reinforces your own spiritual tradition. It's often taking these journeys for, I need to understand what Islam is about or American Indians, what do they think? You can't get it all in the books. So one of my just, and then I wanna open it up in another way. Uh, uh, René Dumas, a great French writer, he wrote uh, Mount, Oh, it'll come to me. It's a mountain climbing book, which Joe Campbell loved. Uh, Albert Camus loved the book. Many, many intellectuals have loved this. And it's about spiritual transformation by walking up. And many spiritual sites, as you know, Borobudur, let's say Angkor Wat in Cambodia, to get to the sacred site, you have to walk up not just nice steps, but precipitous ones. And the architectural motif there is, I need to focus on my spiritual life, or I could fall in mm -hmm. every aspect of that word. Mm -hmm. So in that book, he has a great formula that I have loved formula, kind of an aphorism, uh, live first, then philosophize, then live again. <laughs> Isn't that great? And I think about that in terms of travel. Like you and I will read, we'll read great books, uh, we'll be inspired, we'll teach. And but then we have to go back into the real world and live again. And then that energy for our life at home seems to, it's human nature. There's nothing wrong about it. It begins to deteriorate and we begin to run down in every aspect of that. And that's why we take pilgrimages to rejuvenate to start all over so does that make sense to you live oh, it's resonating for, it is resonating then philosophize or you could put the word travel in there too <laughs> then travel, and then live again because that reminds me of when i was actually finishing up uh, the pilgrimage book by coincidence or by synchronicity uh, Thich Nhat Han was in san francisco at the old unitarian church where Emerson had lectured in the 1840s. So of course I had to go and I was having trouble finishing the book. How do you come in that last stage, the seventh stage? What do you do 
when you need to go home, when your journey is complete. And someone asked in the audience, uh, what is the Buddhist concept or the most important aspect of the Buddhist teaching about pilgrimage? And I said, wow, this is great. And he surprised me with his response. It was so like, humble, which we know is associated with him. The real value of pilgrimage, he said, is the capacity to have learned something on your journey that allows you to come home again and recognize your own backyard as sacred ground. Mm -hmm. So you see where I'm coming full circle with that. Of course, uh, if we're enlightened beings, our little parklet <laughs> at home is sacred. We can make a going home for Thanksgiving to Detroit to see my family could be a pilgrimage. If my attention is there, if my intention and attention are correct. But that, that's one form of pilgrimage, but I would call that 220 volts. 440 volts, <laughs> how's that, just for a metaphor, is by going to Bodh Gaya, uh, going to Canyon de Chez in the Southwest to see where the Anasazi Indians built at great risk to their lives, a kind of sacred temple, which they called, called the White House of all darn things. And, and Navajo and Hopi still, to this day, they make annual pilgrimages to this site, Canyon de Chez. Why? At great expense. Sometimes you might have to sell the family car. I'm serious. To make this journey, but they know you have got to go and touch the ground, touch the site, and be, how, how, how can we say this? Have access to the ancestral spirits. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That that little story of those two nuns really it touched me because uh, I've I've led nine of these pilgrimages to Budgaya, or at least been on a pilgrimage myself. And then just a few years ago, where my mom lives on Ithaca Island in Greece, which I know you've taken groups to, something just occurred to me there because she's not far from that uh, Odyssean palace where. Odysseus's palace where on top of that is a Byzantine church, the ruin of a Byzantine church, a little little church. It's, it's humble and modest, but as you so eloquently put it, these sites are built one atop of the next because there's a recognition of something very powerful there. But more important is that image of these two nuns who are going outside the scope of their comfort zone. To, and what I, what I felt there, and there's also another spot at Anogi, which Anogi in Greece, in Greek on the island of Ithaca means beyond the world, which I absolutely love. <laughs> and there, there's a 13th century church with marvelous murals, unbelievable. And we went in there and we did some mantras in there. And there, this 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 experience that you're describing where you could it's just a visceral, energetic portal. It had nothing to do with Buddhism, but in a way it didn't matter. For me, I was looking for something and boom, you cannot deny this visceral energetic pulsating through your body. And what is it about the spaces? Well, millions, if not hundreds of thousands of people over the centuries have gone there, done prayers, invested their, and as you call it, their intention and attention and presence and compassion and imbued those places with a tremendous harmonic resonance that resonates long after they leave. And it's almost like tapping that. And I think that that's a wonderful thing for those of us that have been one way. We could we could definitely go another. And it's almost like remember 
It's about as a process of reclaiming something and remembering no matter what the dogma is, no matter what the overarching, you know, philosophy is, the body doesn't lie. These places are imbued with power. And so I thank you so much for that. That that's an incredible story of those two nuns. I really love that. Remember is another one of those RE words, right? And my way of dealing with that is that uh, again, this will be part of the hero's journey in some way, the pilgrim's journey, that a part of us, a, a member, an arm, if you want to be literal, let's say in battle, uh, a leg, a finger, we have lost something, but it could also be memory. We've lost something in our memory, and we need to go back to a place, let's say where the Cousineaux came from in the south of France, to remember, to reintegrate ourselves. And that's what I want to do on a journey that I'm doing, let's say, both to Italy next April for Helen, Sacred Earth Journeys, in which we're going to study Dante every day, in which, remember, in the, the famous uh, Divine Comedy, he begins uh, halfway through the dark forest. This is one of the great lines in all of literature to describe the beginning of every pilgrimage. You've, you, you were in the light, you thought you had all the answers and now you're in the dark. So how do you get through the dark forest, the dark night of the soul? We have so many metaphors about that. Some ways you, you go to sacred sites. So Italians have been going on pilgrimages all around Italy forever, but uh, religious as well as literary. I'm In my research, I found that uh, Virgil, who wrote the Aeneid, of course, which is his connection with ancient Greece and the Trojan War, within 24 hours of his death where he was living in a cave outside of Rome for the last several years of his life and he died alone in this cave within a day people were walking to the cave to pay their respects so that suggests to me that we need to go back and pay homage this is humility right rather than I don't need to walk in the footsteps of anybody I have all the answers and that's just empty-headed no, it, it helps to reintegrate ourselves to get that vital energy, the Elan Vital back in our lives. So every day of the tour around Greece, we'll be going to sacred sites and then telling stories. And something that I think you would appreciate that I've been doing for years since my work with Campbell, in which when I would meet with Joe, we had this kind of running gag, but a running literary gag, where I would be in New York and he would be here in San Francisco and we would get each other on the phone. And I would say, Joe, do you want to meet at such and such, uh, the Redwood Room, it's the oldest, one of the oldest bars in San Francisco, to carry on with our long conversation. And what that was an echo of what they used to say at Harvard, the great conversation, which is if you read these 100 books, you don't even have to go to university. You read these 100 books, you can consider yourself educated. Well, my riff with Campbell began, began then to be the long conversation. In other words, you don't spend 20 minutes with someone that you admire talking about the weather or even about the baseball scores as much as I love baseball. Instead, with Joe, it was always, what are you reading, Phil? Where have you been recently? What are you writing? Do you feel that it's a plunge down into gravitas? So I've built that into my tour leading with the groups for Helen, in which we begin every morning and then again in the evening after the day where we have an hour-long conversation. 
So I said, today we're going to visit Virgil's cave, for example, or if we're in Greece, today we're going to walk to Odysseus's palace. And if you take this little staircase up here, I can see it in my mind's eye right now. According to legend, anyway, at the top of that staircase, which is still there, but then there, there's a room, that's where Penelope was waiting for Odysseus waiting. for yes. 20 years. And that's so where the suitors that, were, right? The 100 suitors or whatever it was? That's right. Well, 108, 108 suitors. It's, an old, it's a, Buddhist, a magic number in Buddhism, too, right? right. 108. So that's a way to magnetize memory. It's a way to feel both the glories, but sometimes also the pain. I will tell the story, and I, as often as possible, I'll try to read something. So I would actually read from Homer if we were going to visit Ithaca that day. If I'm in Chile with a group, we would read from Pablo Neruda. So you're honoring the voices that came before you. You might, you might describe, say if we're in Florence, I might talk about Michelangelo, but you set it up. You respect the place, you respect the time. And at the end of the day, after visiting, let's say the, the, the Uffizi, you gather around and you don't just talk about how Florence reminds you of Charlotte, North Carolina. And this is one of the big problems I find in the trips where the associations come so fast and hard. If you're not careful, you're not on Ithaca anymore. You're talking about your recent travels to Colombia or Bhutan, wherever it might be. And that's exhilarating in one way. It's also a way to get out of the moment. You, do you remember the, the Buddhist monk, uh, American Buddhist monk, uh, John Laurie, L-O-O-R-R, L-O-O-R-I, in which he said, if you miss the moment, you miss your life. Yes, John Dido Lori, yes. Great line. And I have to use it almost every day when I'm leading tours, because I'll say, that's really cool that you want to talk about Jacksonville right now, or uh, Borobudur, whatever it might be. But let's, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. So I do have a kind of Buddhist orientation for these, and it has to do with attention, being here now, rather than a kind of social one-upmanship where everybody is uh, kind of bringing out their passports and showing off their passport stamps. Right. <laughs> you know, collecting, this, this, collecting photographs, right? So the conversation then becomes one of the most popular aspects of these tours that I'm, I'm leading. Why? Because then it's a way to avoid a kind of cultural voyeurism, mm. which is at the heart of tourism. It's all about looking and not touching, looking and not participating. But some pilgrimage can get that way too. I worked for a while with uh, Ed Birnbaum. Do you know his, his book on sacred mountains? Mm. One, it's a majestic book, coffee table size, in which he actually climbs the seven great peaks in the world and describes the traditional pilgrimage. And once we lectured together once, and he kind of upbraided me by saying, oh, I want to stop you there, Cousinos. <laughs> I've walked around Mount Kailash in Tibet, and I found a lot of Buddhists there who were just kind of calling it in. <laughs> they weren't really aware. <laughs> they were sneaking peeks at their cell phones. <laughs> so how do you avoid the trap of going mechanical, either as a tourist or as a pilgrim or maybe a travel writer? Uh, a, a filmmaker where I've picked up a lot of the tricks 
that I talk about in the pilgrimage book come from my work as a short story writer, but also a filmmaker, where you have to pay attention. You have to listen. So I have a whole program dedicated to pilgrimage on the Global Spirit series. And I have two great guests. One is Pico Iyer, arguably, it's one of the two or three great travel writers in the world, of course. And then there's a Peruvian anthropologist who was describing her tradition of walking up, I think it's 75 miles uphill. <laughs> it takes a couple weeks to do this. And she said, our tradition there is sensorial. Now there is a word, I'm, that's my gift for the, for the day. <laughs> because she said, we travel with all five senses intact. We listen, we smell, we taste. I thought, good grief, isn't that marvelous? That is a simple piece of instruction that we can use with our groups. Today, well, we're leaving the hotel now, we're about to get on the bus. Let's think about exploring uh, Bodh Gaya or uh, Borobudur, but using all five senses. Yes. Does that make sense to you? It's, it makes perfect sense because, you know, as this as we're doing this podcast, Zuckerberg just dropped his concept of metaverse. And of course, metaverse is an opportunity for everybody to jump into an avatar in an augmented reality. And of course, this is enticing to some people. But for me, my first thought was exactly what you're saying is, do we want to lose our sensory experience? What are you going to smell in augmented reality? What are you going to taste? What is it going to be feel like? And what about the vulnerability of meeting someone for the first time, looking in their eyes, feeling the tone in their vocal intonation, the sweat in the air or the smell in the air? Like there is never going to be a substitute for that. And don't tell me that's not what it means to be a human being. Right. Well, that, that brings up two things. A few, a few years ago, we were just about to leave for Greece. I, I think it was Helen who told me, we have 25 signups, but we just lost somebody this morning. And she, she sent me his email. And it, it was, uh, I, I thought I would, I would save a lot of time and money by just looking at the Great Courses video. <laughs> so, okay. It uh, reminds me of the guy I'm standing in front of Notre Dame in Paris. Maude, it looked a lot better in the movie. So, all right. <laughs> we're, we're having some cognitive dissonance between real experience and the virtual experience. Well, I think as people who respect other cultures and think that or believe that it deepens our own lives here to have a wider aspect, wider access to the great spectrum of human experience, which is why we go to other places. How do we draw that out and make sure we don't turn into robots? One way, uh, this just came to me because someone who took, I think, two of my tours to Ireland with Sacred Earth Journeys, he loved it so much the first time he and his wife came back with their best friends a second time. And he had to write to me because he said, I was just thinking of you because my wife died recently, which I, and I didn't know. That was heartbreaking to hear. But he said, I was listening to Van Morrison singing the old Irish ballad, Raglan Road, which is one of the great romantic ballads of all time. It was written, the lyrics are by Patrick Kavanagh, one of the great, they call him the peasant poet in, in Ireland. And I had wanted to finish the Ireland tour 
before, we always have a final banquet, which I think is a way to celebrate, to tell stories, to clink glasses together. But before that, I, I, I felt the need to bring the ear into the tour, uh, something sensorial again. We have been out to Newgrange, which is one of the great sites in Europe, one of the great megalithic sites, but I wanted something else. So I took the group to the street corner just south of the Liffey in Dublin. And it was the street corner where this peasant poet, Patrick Kavanagh, had first laid eyes on this beautiful, as he called her, raven-haired beauty on a street corner. And he immediately fell in love. And it was like Dante having a vision of Beatrice in Florence when the, this young girl was I think, only 12 years, 14 years old. But she inspired all his poetry for the rest of his life. It was like that with Kavanaugh. So he writes this song, and I wanted to take the group, again, this is pilgrimage, walking in the footsteps of the poet and walking in Van Morrison's footsteps, which brings it right to the modern world, right? So as we're leaving the hotel before the banquet, you, not everybody has to come, but if you want to get a, a real hit of the soul of Irish culture, you got to come with me. It started to rain. Two thirds of them came anyway. We borrowed umbrellas from the desk of the hotel. They walked with me across Dublin. We stood on the street corner and we had an old fashioned little cassette player where we listened to Van Morrison sing one of the greatest love songs really in the 20th century. And people have been telling me, talking to me about this experience, standing there in the rain, listening to what? Listening to love. Mm and having the humility to walk in a rainstorm when you could be taking a warm shower at home, doing whatever. But they, what they were responding to was my day, really a daily invocation. What we're going to do today, what we're going to talk about has to do with the Irish soul. Otherwise, why be here? We could stay home, put in a video, right? So this man reaches out after I haven't heard from him for three years to say that was one of my wife's favorite travel moments ever. Mm. So I, I would consider that a pilgrimage story because we're walking in the footsteps, we're honoring culture, we're trying to experience something that is invisible. It's not visible there in the, the travel poster way of seeing the world. The real beauty of these sites where you and I are going tends to be invisible. It's the invisible realm, but in the good sense. Uh, so does, does that resonate with you about having an echo in a daily manner? This has to be daily, where you talk to people and say, well, this is the American Express tour would take you over here. But I want to show you the real Tibet or the real India. It definitely resonates. And I'm taking notes and tips from your many years of travel because I love this idea of the long conversation. To me, it's the kind of conversation that never ends. It's a deep conversation. It's a deep mm. existential conversation. It's a conversation that you pick up and then maybe you retire for the evening and the next day you pick it up right where you left off. It's a wonderful thing. I, I suppose it must happen in both group format. And then you must have some sort of breakouts where people just sort of find their own way to have conversation on tea with one or two other people, which is a beautiful like sort of metaphor of branching out and then coming back into the center. I have a couple follow-up questions for you regarding the, I, you know, one's a more mythological question. Since we're talking about the group dynamic 
on an adventure like this. I, the meta, the method, the, the you know Campbell's mythology or sort of hero's archetype is has you know been a very you know interpreted as a very masculine solitary affair. And from a Jungian perspective, I understand that in the sense that. We each have our own consciousness. We each have our own mind. We each have to make a descent into the underworld of unconsciously. On the other hand, great myths all seem to also point to the collective possibility of being together as a tribe. And I, I also am keenly aware of the astrology that we're heading into right now, of the age of Aquarius that we're coming into and the transition toward more of a group sense, a collectivist sense, and also the rise of the feminine and I just wonder if the hero, if it's if if you envision any adaptation to the hero myth or the hero tale. I'm so grateful for you bringing this point up, because I was so fortunate to work with Joe for so many years, and helped bring his work into Hollywood, but also in the sports world, because athletes are always looking for models, and. One thing that's helped is one of the last conversations I had with Joe, where we were talking about the influence of women in his life. Remember, Joan Halifax, the great Buddhist nun, was his secretary for a while, an assistant. I never uh, knew that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, Jean Houston was also working with, with Campbell for many years, and others, Carol Pearson, who went on to write The Heroine's Journey, the complimentary book. Uh, Carol Christ, who studied with Joe early on, she, uh, God bless her, she just passed away to, uh, just last year, I believe, did a lot of work on the Demeter and Persephone myth. So all this is to say is, Joe and I were constantly talking about the influence of his female students at Sarah Lawrence, who he said, they were so different from men because my male students always wanted the footnotes. They wanted to be able to prove <laughs> what the myths were, how they had been uh, uh, registered by scholars through the years. But he said the young women students always said, that's great, Mr. Campbell, Professor Campbell, but what does it mean to me? What does that King Arthur story mean to a young woman in Brooklyn in the 1960s, 70s, 80s when he was alive? And because he was married to one of the strongest women in the 20th century, Jean Erdman Campbell, who had danced, one of the famous dancers, she danced with Martha Graham. Joe was always being challenged about the role of women. And he confessed to me, and I think confessed would be an okay word because we were drinking scotch and things come out. And he would say, if he had the time and if he did not have a five book contract signed on his 80th birthday, that he would have gone back and rewritten and brought up to date the hero's journey. And what we explored out of that was, essentially, it's the hero myth for young men on the threshold of adulthood. When you're younger and the testosterone is pumping through your body, you, you are full of this wild energy. Where does it go? Am I going to join the military and be violent? Or am I going to go into sports? Or will I be a really aggressive businessman? Where does it go? The hero's journey helps you focus that. And then the last step, which just too many people forget, and it's why I've been at arm's length with it all for a while. The last stage is the most important one. And it's also the last stage in, oops, Joe. Uh, can we hold on here? You know what happened? 
Did I hit something? I guess I still got you. Or, or I, I can't see you. So my wife's going to try to help here. Oh, okay. Okay. So if we can, we can back up there just a second. Thank you. Thank you. It's that the last stage is the boon, which is a wonderful old word from the mess. And it generally refers to the gift, the ultimate gift that you got on your quest, on your journey, also on your pilgrimage. So on the last day of all my tours, I asked people in that last morning conversation, what was your boon? What was your gift? What did you learn about the world or about yourself? So, so that's all to say that the there is the second myth, and it's the myth from middle age and then the elder age. There are different myths in all of world mythology that signals and appreciates and acknowledges the difference between the mythology you needed to become a young woman or to become a young man, and then a different mythology in middle age, right? And then a third, uh, sometimes let's say women are calling this the crone myth. Mm. I don't need to win a beauty pageant anymore. I need to somehow uh, funnel my wisdom, the wisdom that I've accrued in life. So there's a whole realm of elder stories, sage stories. Remember, I let interviewed me, Ram Dass. Let me push you a little further. So, you know, the sure. the the co-opting from Disney of the we'll call it a McMono myth at this point where they reproduce <laughs> it over and over and over again. Even if they put a little, you know, a female lead character, it's still an individual hero tale. And I'm just trying to sort of nudge you a little bit since you've run so many groups. There is something about the group itself, not just that's more than the sum of the parts. It's more than just, you know, everybody's having their own little taste of their own pilgrimage, but there's something about what happens to a group. Right. That's something I'm very conscious about. And one way to begin with is that I'll send people to the point in the book where, because I pay such close attention to language, I made this little... Uh, etymological breakthrough years ago in travel that helps break us through to the threshold that you're discussing. And that is the basic tourism model is aggressive. We use the word take over and over again, and we don't even think about it. So we take a trip to Europe. And when we're there in Munich, we will take a few photographs of the Oktoberfest shenanigans <laughs> and then we will uh, we're in dublin we'll go to a souvenir shop the last day of the trip and then we'll buy something to take home souvenirs the word take comes up again and again even from the other side where uh, so many people let's say in venice especially where they accuse tourists of being on the take mm. so the shift then is fundamental it's linguistic but it's also spiritual if you Think about this before you get in your Uber or your husband takes you in the car to the airport. You begin to think, I'm not just taking a trip. I'm not entitled to this journey. Instead, this is a privilege. You shift your mind around so that then every day of the journey is a gift. And I ask people to bring some kind of gift. It could be 
20 postcards from Fisherman's Wharf here in San Francisco. It could be a t-shirt. A lot of people in my groups will bring music, which I find pretty beautiful. Say, this is some blues music from New Orleans. And then you give it to someone there in Ithaca. And then the next step from that, from the shift, from the taking to the giving is, is there anything that we can do collectively? Mm -hmm. Rather than just thinking about this as your trip, let's try to form some kind of identity together over the next week, 10 days, 12 days. So you encourage, you give permission to people. It's tacit. You can't force this because I'm suspicious of forced intimacy. This has to happen gently and naturally. And it usually does in my groups where people then become friends for many years afterwards. Still, then the question becomes, how do you make the shift to the, a collective vision versus just 20 more people, 20 individuals traveling together individually, which is just another exercise in narcissism, <laughs> if we're not careful. That means my response to it, and I'd love to hear your own version of this, how can we help? Yeah. How can we make a difference wherever we're going? If it's Cambodia, you know what? We can take up a, a collection and leave some money to help rebuild the school that was bombed by the U.S. forces in 1975. I took a group to Cuba with uh, Helen and Sacred Earth Journeys a couple of years ago. And one fun way to, to deal with this was because of my love of baseball and knowing the love of Cubans for baseball, I just I asked people to bring baseball cards uh, an old mitt in the garage, uh, buy a couple of fresh baseballs because they have a shortage of baseballs. And we handed out baseball equipment yeah. all around Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, just two years ago, 2019, I took the tour group to Sri Lanka. And the, the day that we announced the tour group uh, registration was the day that there was the Easter bombings there. And what we did was we decided not to let fear control us. We decided, you know, that that it was a, a sort of actionable reciprocity by showing that we were supporting Sri Lanka by going in the face of fear. And uh, I asked one of the students who lived in Miami to collect one shell from her shoreline for each of the lives lost. <laughs> we put it, we put it in a bag. We brought it with us on pilgrimage to the Atmastana, the great holy sites of Sri Lanka. And at every stop, we prayed and passed around this bag of shells representing all the lives lost. And at the end of the tour, we made it to uh, Colombo or outside of Colombo. We went to the shore, to the sea, and we released those shells to another shore. And that was a very unifying way to keep the country forefront in our mind, the preciousness of human life the act of altruism, and it was very, very healing, I think, for all of us. And then, of course, there's just the more raw version of this, which, you know, when we go to Nepal this year, one of the main drives is that we support a nunnery in the Sum Valley in the Himalayas. And one of our teachers, Geshe Tenzin Zopa, has this vision of planting a 500-tree apple orchard up there in the valley. So right now, even a year before we go, we're already making a collection and it really brings everybody together with this focal point and this vision and puts them into motion. The pilgrimage has already started. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're a year out. 
And we're thinking about these nuns. We're thinking about a hundred nuns that are, you know, they could be some nameless, faithless people that we arrive for five days and greet. But in a way, it's already a setup for a kind of relationship with them. We're having a relationship. So I really love your idea of the idea of reversing the take and making it about a give. And I'm going to really be concerned about your time here when I ask you one follow-up question just to close out the loop. Since we started with the idea of the National Geographic um, article that came out really saying or suggesting that pilgrimage might be front and center in in the new world that is post-pandemic. And I would just like your last final comments on how you think travel is going to change, what pilgrimage sort of... Uh, why why it might be so important and 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 exactly how it might change you know technically practically might change in the years to come. Thank you for that question and that alert. In in some ways, it would be coming full circle for me to even engage in this question because the everything has its origin right, and the origin of this book was a a chance reading in the New York Times travel section. 1996, uh, where I noticed what they used to call a, a bullet point in the travel section, just a couple of fun facts about travel. And one said that in four years, by the year 2000, the travel business was going to overtake the armaments industry as the number one business in the world. So that caught my eye. Uh, part of me remembering <laughs> growing up with uh, Bible, some Bible classes in Detroit, the whole notion of turning swords into plowshares, that's been a, a metaphor in so many cultures around the world. Let's put down the swords. Let's make peace, this kind of thing. So I, I found a, there was a solid metaphor in there. Although a few wars may have turned the numbers around a little bit, the metaphor still works. But it's then what followed. I began to do some research and found that it was the upsurge, the uptick in pilgrimage in all of the known phase. The numbers were rising going to Mecca and Medina. The numbers were rising up to a million people a year walking to Santiago de Compostela. And then secular pilgrimages, which is what I end up writing about a lot in my book too. Uh, the, the notion of following in Picasso's footsteps or Anna Akhmatova, the great Russian writer. Apparently the one person in all of Russia that Stalin actually feared was a woman poet. And her apartment in St. Petersburg is one of the great literary pilgrimages in the world. So as I begin doing the research, I keep finding that the word used over and over again, pilgrimages on safari, which is another way to think about going to see animals in Africa. And what I like is the, the sacred, the, the fear of the word would be too sanctimonious. A lot of secular people to oh, get back with your bad self, as we said, growing up in Detroit. I don't want to use that word, but it is being used more and more and more. But why? What I found as a counterpoint to that was this old uh, torch song that my father loved when I was growing up. Peggy Lee, if you remember the torch singer, she sang a, a song. Uh, is that all there is, my friend? Then let's keep dancing. Because... I think this is one of the, the, the dirty secrets in the travel business that so many people don't find meaning out there on the road. They're going to just the places that Condé Nast tell you to go to uh, or the travel magazines or now that it's the, the websites. 
but that's not a personal reason to go somewhere. And then you, you arrive there and you're not asking someone local on the street, where's your favorite blues bar? Or where's your favorite chapel? Or the, the smallest gallery? What's the most authentic gallery? We used to do that by having real conversations with people, mm. but now it's taken place on the phone. So my response to the huge upsurge in this attempt to try to travel either on pilgrimage, sacred journeys, metaphors, but it's, uh, it's a search for meaning. It's a search for meaning. I'm going to spend my time, my money, risk my health sometimes, right? It's, it can be dangerous out there health-wise because I need some meaning. Or even my friend Alex Elliott, who was a time critic for, uh, time, an art critic for Time Magazine, who once said that all mythological questions come down to the need for personal answers to universal questions. Beautiful. And I, that staggers me. So that coming out of the pandemic now, my hope as well as my, uh, my great desire, the grand désir, as the French used to call it, the great, the deep desire to see the world with your own eyes will be to see it with more meaning because time has collapsed during the pandemic. Time, ain't, was it, what did Shakespeare used to say? Time is out of joint. It's like we've had a huge chiropractic move in terms of time and our memories are a little different now, 20 months down the road. And I think the way that we're going to travel is going to reflect that. There will be more of an, ins an insistence on I don't want to see your cliches anymore. And every place has them. Every culture has a travel poster and a, and a cliched way of saying, come and see us and look at this and go here and go here. People have been chastened because of the pandemic. We've lost 700,000 plus people. There's, we can't possibly travel the same way. Um, I like to think that there is a, a deeper yearning or longing for significant and heart-stirring travel. It's so beautiful. That's a beautiful place to end. I mean, I could I could chat with you, but I'm so sensitive of your time, and I just feel like that's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Phil Casano, for all you've done for the travel industry to revolutionize the travel industry, bringing incredible integrity on the road with all of your groups. Thank you for your books and your contributions and for such a deep well of knowledge today on today's Wisdom Keeper podcast. Until, until we meet next time, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Travel safe. Travel soulfully, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Keeper podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of sacred knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review, and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies program at gradualpath.com. Until we gather again, all best wishes.